Welcome to the Damascus Road Podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. This coming weekend is our next monthly mobile food bank. So we started the food bank, if you don't know, in the fall of 2017, so we've been running it for a while now, uh, to help address food insecurity both on the U of A campus and kind of in the wider Tucson community. So we partner with an organization called Caring Ministries, that's the big truck that comes every Saturday uh, for the food bank, if you guys have been there before. And what they do is they go around Tucson, they collect food from grocery stores that can't be sold in time because they've already got a new shipment in, or produce that's considered ugly and people don't want to buy it. And they pick that up and they get it to groups like us who then distribute it to people in need. With over 700,000 people in Arizona facing food insecurity and 1.7 million, that is million tons of food wasted just last year alone in our state, the opportunity for us to step into that gap and help lessen both food waste and food insecurity is huge. This is really good, tangible work that blesses our community. And that said, it can also be very, very difficult. When we first started the food bank, our system was for caring ministries to drop off several thousand pounds of food, all mixed together in boxes on pallets, and we would then have to sort it. So this is a gargantuan task every month going through boxes and boxes of bananas and donuts and pico de gallo and everything in between on that spectrum of foods. Inevitably, there would be some produce past its prime, perhaps some tomatoes squished under a bunch of potatoes that you would only discover was rotten when your hand sunk into its putrid, rotting flesh. Don't worry, we wore gloves, but it was still disgusting. And once we got through anything we can safely give away, we also had to sort it into some semblance of order on the table so that people could go through and pick out what they wanted. And for produce, that meant trying to corral potatoes, tomatoes, citrus, plums, garlic, random herbs, fruit that no one knows what it is, and more into semi-organized piles for people to select from. And I can't tell you how many times somebody asked me if something was a cucumber or a zucchini. I answered that so many times. And if you're curious about how I remember, uh, zucchinis have a hat and cucumbers don't. Uh, You're welcome, you'll use that forever. So this all takes a while to go through all that sorting, sorting all the cucumbers from the zucchinis and all that jazz. So usually people would start coming through the line while we were still sorting. So we would be throwing stuff on the tables as fast as we could while people clamored for more or someone complained that someone else was getting more than them or someone else in line was grabbing like five sheet cakes and not leaving anything else for anyone else in the line. And sometimes out of desperation or communication difficulties or simply an overwhelming feeling of scarcity, people would take more than was probably fair uh, or pass things off to a relative or a friend outside of the line so that they could fit more in their box. And inevitably, other people in the line would notice this and start to get very frustrated and things would get very tense and our volunteers would be left to try and smooth things over before somebody said something rude or incendiary. And most of the people were really, really wonderful, but it could get kind of dicey. And then sometimes we would blow through our pile of food so quickly that anyone who arrived just minutes late would get next to nothing. Um, And there were some months where we would get to the end a couple hours later and still have a mountain of food to figure out a home for. And of course, there was the time that we overfilled a trash bag with rotten fruit that burst on me on my way to take it to the dumpster. And so I was left to clean that up off the ground while poor unsuspecting freshmen came out of their dorms to an unpleasant, stinky surprise. 
And when I took over the administrative side of the food bank in early 2020, I had a lot to address, making sure we had enough volunteers every month to try and do all of that sorting and distribution, how to track how many people we were serving, keeping peace in the line, while also making sure everyone was actually getting what they needed. I also got lots of well-meaning suggestions from everyone from professors to clients to just other random people I would tell about the food bank um, on things we could do to improve. Why don't you also offer wellness clinics or job help at the food bank? Why aren't there more food options for people with very specific dietary restrictions? Why don't you hold it during the week when the bus schedule is better? Why don't you hold it later in the day so students who don't want to get up early can come get food? Lots of suggestions, not a lot of ways to sustainably implement that, and some of those things actively we can't do together. And of course, this all got a million times more complicated when COVID hit, because unlike lots of things, you can't do a food bank on Zoom. And so we had to pivot how we did everything very quickly. And by the grace of God, we were able to continue doing the food bank. We still do it today. And a lot of the things that we changed early on in the pandemic actually led to a better system that we still use now. God was and is good to bless our community through this work over and over again. And yet, there's still a lot of messiness to it. We get complaints from clients, challenges in getting enough volunteers, especially for boxing on Fridays, having to work around construction and move in on campus the way we did last month, and wondering if, are we actually doing enough to address such a massive issue in our community? Feeding the hungry and mitigating food waste are good and seemingly simple things. It feels like you should be able to just take the food before it gets wasted and give it to people who need it. Easy, right? And yet even this good work can be really complicated and messy in the real world. And feeding people is not the only complicated and messy issue in the world. There's homelessness, generational poverty, human trafficking, complex trauma, the disturbingly high rate of maternal mortality in the US, and many, many more. There are so many issues and just so many voices that cry out for justice on a daily basis. We would be hard pressed to pretend that all is well for everyone. And there is a myriad of voices calling us to action on any given topic. But what kind of action? What can we do? Can I even actually do anything that really addresses this? For every social justice issue, there is a related ideological battle on how to address it, who should address it, and if it even matters to address. We flounder in this onslaught of information, of half answers, and seemingly impossible solutions. And more often than I think we would like to admit, and I know this is certainly true for me, our reaction is to simply ignore it, to try and not get pulled down in this tide of need. And it's hard to even agree on what justice actually means. I imagine if we took a poll of just this room, we'd end up with as many different definitions of justice as there are people in here this morning. Justice, according to the way of the world, is a complex thing, and our Western secular ideas of justice and the culture we're in are just not monolithic. We have individual liberty, where everyone should be free to do as they seem fit. There's the issue of equality versus equity, if everyone should receive the exact same treatment and privileges, or if they should instead be equitable, where everyone gets what they need to reach a similar standard, even if that means people are getting something different. For some, justice means the subversion of power, and for others, it means the maximization of happiness for as many people in the world as possible. And there are certainly pieces of truth and wisdom in all of these. I don't want to say that all of these are 100% wrong all the time, but ultimately, they cannot all coexist at the same time, and several of these actively butt into each other. What if my individual freedom to do whatever I want gets in the way of your ability to maximize your happiness? What's the solution? And based on our social media feeds, I just don't think we've come up with a good answer for that one yet. 
And the flaws in the world's way of doing justice can most easily be seen in the people who are actually trying to live them out. This tends to create a performative identity with people putting a lot of energy and time into virtue signaling and trying to appear correct and right by a standard that is always shifting, acting out of fear of being canceled or seeking to cancel or silence others who don't agree or perform in the same way. The way of the world forces us to do justice in order to earn security and belonging rather than doing justice from a place of security and belonging. It puts people, us, in the place of saviors, saddling individuals with all of the burden of our complex problems in the world and forgetting our big God. We are each expected to know and be perfect across a whole host of issues, as if all of us individually have perfect agency to create change in every kind of problem. And that simply isn't true. We are very, very limited beings who can only take in so much information at once. And yet, we have technology that amalgamates all of the world's suffering and problems into our newsfeed for our immediate consumption every minute of every day. We are constantly challenged, admonished, shamed, and overwhelmed with issues and everyone's opinion, informed or not, on how we should be solving them. To quote technology ethicist Tristan Harris, simply put, technology has outmatched our brains, diminishing our capacity to address the world's most pressing challenges. And this is not to just throw all of the blame on like internet and social media. That's not the, the only problem here. But our particular technological and social landscape has exacerbated an internal struggle that we've had for a long time. The desire to make ourselves into little gods, perfect and omniscient. And when we can't keep up with this impossible task, and we won't, we start to fracture both individually and communally, trying to know everything about every issue and to save the world by our own striving. But the world's way of justice and our attempts to be saviors of the world have left us, in fact, divided by injustice and shattered along ideological lines. And yet here we are, talking about the way of justice on a Sunday morning at church. And given what a difficult, complicated issue justice is today, it's worth asking what Jesus actually had to say on it, if anything. Was Jesus' message a social one or merely a spiritual one? What does it mean to follow Jesus in the way of justice in a world that we can see is so radically unjust? So I want us to start with the words of Jesus himself, specifically those he uses to inaugurate his ministry in the Gospel of Luke. At the beginning of this series, Ryan taught us that someone's last words have a disproportionate impact, but the words that someone uses to introduce themselves are also really important for us to note. In Luke 4, Jesus comes into the synagogue, as he would do regularly, after his baptism and testing in the desert, and unlike his very first miracle of turning water into wine, where he tries to avoid notice, Jesus very purposefully calls attention to himself in a big way here picking up in Luke 4.16. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard 
has been fulfilled this very day. Jesus heralds his ministry with a proclamation of justice. And here he connects himself to the God of the Old Testament, who is already known at this point to God's people as the defender of the fatherless who takes up the cause of the marginalized. Jesus and that same God are one, and Jesus' mission is the same. And this is how Jesus chooses to open up his ministry to the wider community. Not with a discussion of doctrine or even talking about sin and salvation, but by proclaiming justice and care for the hurt, the captive, the oppressed, and the disenfranchised in his opening message. Pastor Ashley Anderson describes it this way. Justice was a marker of the kingdom of God and of the redemptive work that Jesus came to do. Not a footnote, not a throwaway phrase that Jesus used in his campaign, but a core value and so important to Jesus' mission that he introduces his very ministry with a message of biblical justice. But how would Jesus have understood this concept of biblical justice? We've already seen that in our culture, there's a lot of different ways you can define this. And there's two main words that are used in Hebrew for the idea of justice. So first we have uh, mishpat which refers to justice kind of in a downstream sense, in the way of deciding a case or a judgment. And it's this kind of justice that we would, this kind of word that we would use in the sense of justice as punishment or acquittal, of restoring things to what they should be. Then we have the word sedeka, which is usually translated as righteousness. It refers to right relationship, or what we might think of as upstream justice. By remaining in right relationship, there is no need to right wrongs with mishpat. And so together with these words, we see a justice that flows out of righteousness and right relationship. And this would have informed an understanding of justice that was both social and spiritual. And for Jesus, we see that these were entirely integrated concepts. Throughout his ministry, we see him set people spiritually and physically free. And he emphasizes this again to John the Baptist and his disciples a little later in Luke. John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses and evil spirits and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Again, Jesus responds to a question of who he is and what he came to do with Old Testament prophecy around God's justice. Because this is the best evidence that God is here, that healing, freedom, and justice for the poor, the hurting, and the oppressed have come. Justice according to the way of Jesus is underpinned by this understanding that God's kingdom is breaking through here and now in every way, not just spiritually, but physically and socially as well. Jesus' proclamation of the gospel isn't fire insurance for some far off problem, but for a kingdom that's coming here and now. Jesus calls back to the pattern of God throughout the Old Testament, who measured faithfulness, not simply in outward appearance and agreements on the part of of God's people, but in how well justice was being done among them. In Isaiah 58, we see God equating justice with true worship, telling the Israelites that all of their performative acts of piety are not viewed positively when injustice is still running rampant in their land. Looking at just a section of the passage, we see that 
he, the Israelites saying, we have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves and you don't even notice it. I will tell you why, I respond. It is because you are fasting to please yourself or you please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting if you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourself with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. God calls God's people not into greater doctrinal correctness or more ostentatious acts of piety, but to feeding the hungry, to freeing the imprisoned, to choosing to help when it will be easier to avoid and ignore those same problems. This is the kind of worship that God wants, not performance out of fear or self-aggrandizement. Anderson puts it this way, God stopped listening to their prayers because they had stopped listening to the cries of the oppressed. And this is justice in the way of Jesus. And we see him model this understanding of justice throughout his ministry. He responds to widespread racism and prejudice against Gentiles by weaving them into the narrative of God's work, elevating them both in his teaching and his interactions. Jesus elevated women and children who were considered less important and less worthy in society at the time. He spoke openly with women in public and he welcomed little children into his arms when others would have cast them aside as being less worthy of an important teacher's attention. Jesus gave himself to the sick, healing them, even touching the sick and risking spiritual defilements in the eyes of his peers. He chose to befriend and be generous to the poor and commanded his disciples to do the same. And perhaps the most salient example of this is how Jesus approached the dinner table in his ministry. In this time, the dinner table represented social value and status. So this was the place you would go to network and to kind of connect with those with wealth and power in the hope that they would give you some of what they had. And the presence of someone who was poor at the dinner table would have been seen as both a source of dishonor for the host and a waste of time for everyone who is simply there to social climb. So in this space, the poor were systematically disenfranchised and excluded from any sort of opportunity for social equity. And so in response to this consistent injustice, Jesus commands his followers to subvert this system. In Luke 14, we read, then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Jesus sacrificed his reputation on behalf of the marginalized, and he taught his disciples to do the same, to leverage whatever they had to make room for others. Rather than focusing on personal position and social gain, the focus was to be turned outwards, to those who did not have the same access and social power so that justice could be enacted in the community. 
Invite those who are usually cast aside, not those who can do something for you. This is the way of justice that Jesus is calling us into. Jesus is the source and sustainer of justice for us because he loved us first. Our role is not to be the savior here, but to simply choose to turn outward rather than inward. The way of the world tells us that we have to be the saviors, that we are the initiators of justice. But the way of Jesus says that we are participants in the good work that God is already doing, loving others as God first loved us. When we worry that we don't have what we need to do justice in this way that Jesus calls us to, we can remember that he will provide. Luke 12 shows us a picture of a life totally dependent on God, and then Jesus ends with this teaching. And don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world, but your Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom, and God will give you all that you need. We tend to live in a scarcity mindset, but Jesus invites us into a life lived out of abundance, knowing that God cares for us. We can live lives of radical generosity and care because Jesus tells us that we can seek first the kingdom and that everything else we need will be added on to us. And when we do this, he will meet us in the margins. Jesus promises that one of the places we will tangibly experience the presence of God is among the poor, even if we don't realize it. Matthew 25 says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Whenever we encounter the poor, the sick, the hurting, the marginalized, Jesus is near to us and them in that moment. Knowing this about Jesus as the source and sustainer of justice for us, that he loved us first, that he will provide, and that he promises to meet us in the margins, Jesus offers us then three invitations in actually living out biblical justice, articulated beautifully by Pastor Ashley Anderson. Biblical justice requires us to sacrifice privilege with suspended judgment for the restoration of others. And first, biblical justice requires sacrificing privilege. Now, I know privilege is a super loaded term, uh, and we do not have time to unpack every single layer of that this morning. So instead, we're going to use Jesus' teaching of who to invite to our banquets as our model for what this could look like. As we already saw in Luke 14 a little while ago, Jesus instructed his disciples to sacrifice their time, status, and resources for the sake of the vulnerable. Justice, both of the restorative mishpat kind and of the upstream sedeka kind, will cost us something. It costs us time, energy, money, emotional resources, social capital, our reputation. Often, we are giving out of our surplus and not out of our need. And, and that doesn't mean that giving out of our abundance is bad. 
It just means that it doesn't cost us the same and it doesn't force us to rely on God the way that giving out of our need will. Recently, I've been working to declutter our house and so I've been giving a lot of stuff away in our local Buy Nothing group on Facebook. And I've been amazed at uh, just how much extra stuff I have crammed into our little house. I have given away boxes and boxes and trash bags full of stuff and yet I still somehow find more every day. It has made me realize just how far I would have to go before I was actually sacrificing something rather than simply giving out of my own excess. I have more coats, more t-shirts, more food, more than I need. And it's prompted a lot of self-reflection on where exactly am I putting my hope in provision, regardless of what I say, what am I physically doing, and what it would mean to live a life utterly dependent on God. And we sacrifice privilege with suspended judgment. Doing this kind of work, this work of justice in the way of Jesus, means that we have to be involved in people's actual messy lives. Our culture tends to overlay this one-dimensional lens of virtue upon people who are marginalized, but that robs them of the complex identity that we give ourselves. The poor, the marginalized, the oppressed are all people, and people are complicated. When we enter into the lives of vulnerable, we often carry this Uh, unspoken assumption with us that we get to be complex and you have to be simple and act in the way that I want. And if you don't follow that assumption or when you don't follow that assumption, I'm out. I mean, I'd like to give money to a homeless person, but only if they never lie to me and they only use the money for the thing that they said they were going to. I'd like to foster children, but only if they never enact the violence and trauma that they saw in their previous home. I'd like to help refugees, but only if they model all of the parts of their stories and culture that I like and I'm comfortable with and they act grateful to me all the time. I recently heard someone talking about a homeless person that they watched getting a packaged meal from the library and then being horrified when that person uh, littered the packaging from that meal outside. Shouldn't they be so grateful? Shouldn't they be doing everything right because they just got this food for free? But unhoused people are still people and people are complicated when you carry everything you own on your back, when the rates of mental illness among the homeless are disproportionately high relative to the rest of the population, when your basic needs of food and shelter are inconsistently met, it seems a little short-sighted to worry about some trash missing a trash can. The poor, the formerly incarcerated, the single parent, the refugee, the unhoused, they are people and people are complicated. We cannot enter into the reality of someone's lived experience with criticism and shame at the ready but instead, we need to suspend judgment. It may be that when you choose to extend help to someone, they spurn it, or they may act in a way that doesn't align with your perception of what gratitude looks like. Choose to do it anyway. Love them anyway. Now, this does not mean that you should be putting yourself into super dangerous situations or to never have have boundaries. Just know that when you enter into this work, you will sometimes be hurt and disappointed because people are people. And as we enter into the complicated stories people are living in, they will not always meet the expectations that we may have been unconsciously carrying. Walk with suspended judgment, being patient as God has been patient with you. And finally, we sacrifice privilege with suspended judgment for the restoration of others. God is the restorer of all things. The way of the world says that we are the saviors and initiators of justice, but the way of Jesus says that we are participants in God's good restorative work, loving others as God first loved us. In Israel's covenantal law, God's people, so also us, 
are God's method for caring for the marginalized, the most vulnerable people with fragile financial and social safety nets. Across the Old Testament, we see God repeatedly command his people to care for the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. And today in that group, we might include refugees and displaced persons, survivors of human trafficking, those who were formerly incarcerated, and single parent families. The beauty of this work is that all of Israel was meant to walk in it together. One person walking in the way of justice is meaningful and good, but an entire community enacting this with radical generosity and self-giving love is transformative. Our individual heroics, while perhaps very Instagrammable, are just not going to change the world. Our communal faithfulness, choosing to follow Jesus' way of justice together, just might. And before you leave church today, and get lunch, and go about your day, and do your chores for the week, I want you to consider our invitation into the way of justice. Because our response to this is mostly going to happen when we leave this room. Because I'm just going to break this to you now, you are not going to solve poverty in active reflection today, just lower your expectations. But we don't want to just move on from this message feeling good about the topic of justice with no real motivation or uh, plan to change. So to start, I want us to consider the following questions um, when we enter into our time of reflection today. First, who was invited to your table? When was the last time you shared a meal with someone who couldn't offer you anything in return? When was the last time your heart broke at the sight of suffering? When was the last time that you met the need of someone who needed it? And I wanna be clear, these questions are not meant to indict or shame anyone this morning, but to stir up memories of God's work in your life and in the lives around you, to remember how God has moved in the past, to ask that our hearts be softened from our culture's armor of cynicism and sarcasm, that it might actually break at the sight of injustice and suffering in our world and to help us dream of what we might do next to partner in God's restorative work. And all of this internal work and reflection leads us to how we might respond to Jesus' invitation in the way of justice. How can we sacrifice privilege with suspended judgment for the restoration of others? And alongside this reflection, I wanna challenge you to find a way to tangibly live out the way of justice this week. Now, you don't need to reinvent the wheel and like create a whole new nonprofit or new ministry by Wednesday. Simply choose to show up and join in the good work that is already happening in our community. A really easy opportunity for this is the mobile food bank that's happening this coming Friday and Saturday. So Friday morning, we pack boxes at Caring Ministries. So we sort through the food and put together boxes to be given away on campus the following day. Um, and trust me, this is much easier than the process that I described earlier. And I have yet to have a bag of rotten fruit break on me here. So... That's, that's already nicer. We start at 8 a.m., and normally we're done packing over 100 boxes by about 10.30. It's very efficient. And this is a particularly good opportunity for any students or people who have alternative work schedules who don't have something on Friday morning um, to come help with this work. And if you need a ride, we are happy to help you with that. Please don't let that be the barrier. And then on Saturday morning, we distribute the food over by the Global Center. So right across the street from us, uh, go past the volleyball courts on Tyndall, that's where we'll be. 
So people come through and we have a drive up system so we can put food directly into people's cars and they can just go. Or we also offer um, food to people who just walk up. So we're able to assist in both of those ways. So we start set up for that at 7.45 to beat some of the heat um, and help respect people's schedules. And regularly we give away all 100 plus of our boxes by like 9.30. Again, very efficient system. You can join the mobile food bank group on Church Center, so exactly what Alyssa described earlier. Um, you can go into the announcements tab and it will take you there, or you can go to the service teams uh, area under the groups tab. And if you're confused by that and you still don't know where to find it, please just come find me after service and I will take your phone from you and I will put your, you into the group. I'm happy to help you do that. The Chinakis would be happy to help you with that. Um, we want you to have this opportunity to serve alongside us and we will help you in whatever way we can for you to have that opportunity. This is a really great way to tangibly serve our campus and our community. We have a wonderful group of people. It's wonderful to get to start recognizing people who come every month, who are picking up food for themselves, for their relatives, for their friends and neighbors. And we have a great group of volunteers that you can connect with there as well. Practice sacrificing some of your time and energy to live out the way of justice, serving others with suspended judgment, and creating space in your life and in your heart to experience God's restorative work. The way of the world tells us that we have to be the saviors, that we have to initiate justice, that it's all on us. But the way of Jesus says that we are participants in God's good restorative work. We, and we love others as God loved us first. And Jesus concluded that reading in Luke 4 that we read first today by announcing that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And here he's referencing the year of Jubilee. And this was a part of Old Testament law in which every 50 years on a Sabbath year for Israel, that a full year of restoration and freedom would be proclaimed. Debts would be forgiven, uh, prisoners would be set free, land would be reclaimed and rested, all in reflection of what God was doing and would continue to do in the world God created. Jesus has come, so Jubilee is here as the kingdom of God continues to break through in our world, even here and now. And I hope and pray that we can join into this good and restorative work of, that God is doing all around us. And I'd like to end today uh, with a Franciscan benediction for the way of justice. May God bless us with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that we may live from a place or from deep within our hearts. May God bless us with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of God's creations so that we may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless us with just enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in the world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all our children and all our neighbors who are poor. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.